Hi, welcome to the Anti-People Pleasing Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Westwood, the Codependency Coach. Each week, I answer your questions on codependency, people-pleasing, and all things relationship-related submitted to me via Instagram. Follow me on the gram at Joe Westwood to submit your questions in my stories every Monday. You can also hit the link in the show notes to take you straight there. So before we get into the questions today, I want to let you know that we are on episode 16 of this very first season of the Anti-People Pleasing podcast. And this season will be 20 episodes long before I take a little break in the new year to work on some other projects. Then I'll be back in February with another season of podcast goodness for you. That means you have four more opportunities to get your questions answered on the pod this year. So hop over and follow me on the gram to submit yours. Also, I would love to hear any of your success stories that you're happy for me to share on the podcast. If I've answered a question for you, or even if you've heard the answer to someone else's question and it's given you a realization or maybe even a revelation or just helped you on your recovery journey, please do let me know. I'll post a box in my stories where you can submit or you can send me a DM. As always, you can be anonymous if you wish. Okay, the house has been kept. You know what you need to know. If you felt nervous or anxious about submitting a question to the pod, please take this as your formal invitation from me to you to send that bad boy in. Remember that whatever you're going through, there are a whole bunch of other people out there listening who will relate and find your question super helpful to hear as well. And speaking of your brilliant questions, let's get down to it. So our first question today comes from Lucy who asked how to deal with a family Christmas with my mother who wants to parent my child and still treat me like one. Obviously I had to pick this one because it's topical and I've got a feeling it will resonate with so many of you as we approach the festive season. I checked in with Lucy for more details on exactly how this controlling and patronizing behavior shows up. She expanded further by saying My parents treat me like a child and are very controlling. They don't agree with my parenting and even though my mother has said, I won't say anything anymore, she always pipes up with the phrase, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to say something now. And then she tells me all the things I'm doing wrong. I think I have PTSD from my childhood being parented their way and he's my child. I want him to be heard and respected, not bullied, guilt-tripped and forced. I'm worried that it's going to end badly again. The last time I went, a situation happened where they sent me and my son upstairs and ate their Christmas dinner without us. My son said, mommy, I'm hungry, which snapped me out of it. And I thought, how dare they do this? I'm an adult and responsible for my son's welfare. I took him down and my mom said, it's only because we care. I ignored this comment, microwaved our dinners and we carried on. They make plans but never stick to them and somehow it's always my fault things don't turn out as they should. My mother is a master of guilt tripping and she ends up in bed if I say anything back to her. I'm so used to trying to keep the peace, I revert to type by just letting everything go, but my son really wants to be there and I'm on my own. It's all so confusing and I leave after with my head in my hands like what the fuck just happened. I always start with such high hopes and boundaries, but it feels easier not to keep them and let it all just be their way. By the way, I'm 44 and my son is six. Okay, love, I'm coming in hot for this one with some loving big sister best friend energy. 
why the fuck are you even going there? Ever. At all. Let alone for Christmas. I know you said you're on your own, but let me take a moment to empower you, not only as a woman, but as a mother. So what, you don't have a partner? Big deal. You won't be the only indie mom doing Christmas on her own. And you know what? I bet you've got some pals with or without kids who'd happily have you over for Christmas. I can tell you from experience that Friendsmas is absolutely glorious and it's even sweeter if you have a dysfunctional as fuck family because it's also served with a side of sweet relief. And I know you said your son wants to go to your parents' house, but babe, he's six. If you asked him if you wanted to go to the zoo for Christmas Day, he'd probably say yes. I get that you want to parent in a way that he feels heard and that's awesome and I wholeheartedly agree with you but sometimes you've got to be the mama bear and do what you know will ultimately be better for him because you're the grown-up. He doesn't know that his grandparents are fucked up, controlling and emotionally manipulative pieces of work, but you do. So make the choice that will be better for both of you. And if you can get yourself an invite to someone else's Christmas table, I find offering to help cook, bringing a bottle and even the extra chairs if you need to can help with this one. Being around other adults and children will be amazing for your son. There'll be so many more people for him to play and interact with. He'll forget nasty, grumpy old granny and granddad even exist. And even if that's not an option for you and it ends up being just the two of you, you both deserve the peace and joy that not spending the day with your parents will bring instead. I mean, it's not like it's a great experience for your boy either. Being sent upstairs with no dinner... That's not only weird as fuck, quite frankly, it's disgusting. I couldn't imagine any scenario in which any normally functioning person would treat their family like that. If you think you have PTSD, likely complex PTSD from their parenting style, that likely means that you were abused and or neglected and traumatized. They don't deserve your presence. All adults earn their continued places in each other's lives by the way they treat each other, not by shared genetic material. So I think I've made my feelings on your parents and what you should do for Christmas quite clear. You don't deserve to be made miserable by these people and their projected, unresolved bullshit any day of the year, not least one of the most magical and special days of the year for your son. Do you really want his memories of Christmas to be of his mom being upset and belittled and told off like she's a child and being sent upstairs hungry? Or would you like them to be full of fun, laughter and joy? Okay, now there are two more elements that we need to address. The part that you play in this dynamic and what the fallout of you telling them that you're not going will be and how to deal with that. First up, the part you play. It's important for me to tread carefully around this one. I'm always wary of this aspect of my advice sounding a bit victim blamey. So let me clarify right now that I in no way think that your parents' behavior is your fault. They have been treating you this way for your whole life, since long before you had any agency or autonomy to make your own decisions about how to interact with them. You simply had to survive their parenting. So with that agreed, let's get to what you can do about this seemingly interminable dynamic. I've been asked a few times in my career how people can stop their parents from treating them like a child. And the answer is, stop acting like one. This abusive dynamic is able to continue because, as you said in the further context you gave me, you choose to just give in and let them have it their way. In the same way I'm sure you were taught and conditioned to roll over and go into fawn trauma response mode and people please like crazy just to keep them happy when you were young. 
Of course, the irony is that it never worked. Nothing you did would have ever been good enough to actually please your parents or keep the peace, and it's just the same today. But regardless, you try and try at the expense of your mental and physical health. So now you have to be big and brave and grown up and break this cycle by refusing to engage with it. And that starts by refusing to spend Christmas Day with them. And honestly, if you do want to spend any time with them at all, you're going to have to lay down some very firm boundaries and train yourself not to react when your mom pulls her dramatics and takes to her bed to guilt trip you. I mean, accountability does usually make abusers feel pretty sick. So what I mean by firm boundaries is telling them that you do not want any comments on your parenting. And if you hear any, you will be leaving immediately. And you have to have the stones to follow it up. Like the minute your mom starts, you silently gather up your things, take your son and go. Like that's how firm of a boundary we're talking. Your parents need to learn that actions have consequences. They've been getting away with this shit forever and they're not going to like it when they start feeling the ramifications of how they've acted. And naturally, they'll just blame you. They do anyway, but tough titty mates. Should have been better parents and better people. And those kind of boundaries are not only hard to learn, but they're pretty exhausting to keep enforcing. It's wildly unfair that this now falls to you to try to teach them how to be better people in this very unforgiving way. Just to really hammer it home, don't worry, they don't deserve a more forgiving way. So again, and I cannot say it enough, you can choose whether it's really worth the stress and energy for you to do it. You do not have to have your parents in your life. You do not owe them anything. Nope, not even your life. They chose to have you. You didn't ask to be born. In the same way that you chose your son and you treat him accordingly, your parents missed that memo. You know, the one that says, treat child as if you chose them and want them and love them and as if your issues are your own to fix and not theirs. Hmm, mind-blowing, right? Side note. Trust me, your son will be fine without abusive grandparents in his life. It's not good for him to see his mum treated this way anyway, so any benefits you think he gets from having them around is outweighed by the dysfunctional bullshit he witnesses. You know better than I that kids are sponges. They see, hear, and take everything in, and this is no different. I'm sure you wouldn't let him witness you with an abusive partner. Why let him witness you with abusive parents? And finally, let's talk about what the effects of ditching Christmas with your dysfunctional family will be. Often people avoid putting in hard boundaries or rejecting their family of origins expectations because it feels like the fallout will be nuclear. But think about it logically. The fallout is nuclear anyway. You know you're going to have a crap time if you go there. You know you're going to come away disheartened, deflated and exhausted. And yes, You will wonder if you're being too mean or harsh or if this year will be the one that just could have been different. That's the magical thinking of a codependent talking, my darling. The fantasy of a lovely Christmas with your parents is easy to imagine when you don't have to be in the reality of it. That's why you always go in with high hopes. Just like anyone who has been abused and can't get themselves out of the situation just yet. Abused people don't stay because they love being abused. They stay or keep going back because there's some part of them that believes that they're not worth more than that and that it could, it might be different this time. That's exactly how abuse is meant to work. You're not meant to wake up and smell the coffee. You're meant to stay in the nightmare playing their games. 
So this one actually might get me as fired up, if not a little more than your horrible, wretched little boyfriend experience goons that you write into me about. Lol, can you tell? Lucy, I hope this has given you some clarity and made you feel strong enough to know that you can do this shock horror controversial thing and renounce Christmas with your parents and instead choose love, joy, peace and contentment with your family of creation. Whether it's a table for two at yours or you tag along to form a merry bunch with a pal, if you really want your child's upbringing to be different to yours, take this amazing opportunity to show him that we don't allow abusive people in our lives and we are strong and brave and worthy enough to make better choices for ourselves. If you want any more support on the specifics of how to pull this off, Lucy, hit me up in the DMs. And your question has got me thinking that one day I want to host a Christmas for codependence. You know, hire out a big space and everyone with dysfunctional families that wants to be around friends instead can come and we'll all just have a jolly old knees up. Bring the babies and the dogs too, because with so many natural caretakers in the room, everyone will be well looked after at all times. I mean, seriously, I am considering it. Watch this space. And now this from Cecilia, who said, Hi, Joe, I have a question retiming in relationships. I remember you saying that in fact, timing is everything. And this line kind of stuck with me as I've always thought that there's not such a thing as good or bad timing, i.e. that if the person you meet is a really good fit for you, then the relationship will happen anyway, in spite of logistic difficulties. If you really like someone, you make time and space for them in your life. I also have the impression that the timing argument is often brought up by codependent people to justify shitty behavior by potential partners and thus justify their decision to keep them in their lives, waiting for the timing to be right. In sum, is timing really everything? Thanks a lot. I absolutely love your podcast. Well, thanks so much, Cecilia. I truly appreciate your question and the kind words. So we have a callback here to a question that was asked on episode nine of the pod about the idea of right person, wrong timing. I've linked to the episode in the show notes if you want to go back and have a listen to that. But what I would say in response to your take on the answer, Cecilia, is not that timing is everything, but that timing is a thing, as in it is real. You mention here two different ways that codependent people can use timing to the benefit of their dysfunction. And that's great because it proves the point that codependency is insidious and will use literally anything, any old story, any old bullshit to keep you stuck. So just as a codependent babe might use timing as an excuse to romanticize and fantasize a relationship into existence that is never realistically going to happen, at least not on any kind of reasonable timing for a human lifespan, that same codependent babe might use timing as a way to keep excusing their partner's emotional absence or neglect. Codependency will bend the laws of time and space, or at least your perception of them, to make a relationship happen especially if you're obsessed or enmeshed with the person. One of the big issues around timing and logistics, and to me, timing is in itself a logistic, is that unrecovered codependents go into relationships with no idea of what they actually want, either from a partner just as a person, or what is acceptable to them in terms of the boring stuff, like distance, expectations around the pace of the relationship, or how open and ready this potential partner is to having the kind of relationship that they want, which are all things that affect, you got it, timing. 
Timing needs to be respected as something just as tangible as if the person you're interested in is single or if they're a good communicator or if you're attracted to them. When you've done some recovery work and you've written your lists, haven't mentioned those in a while, go to episode seven to find out where you've got to make three important lists before you even think about going on another date. You might find that you're someone for whom, say, long distance isn't an issue. So if you meet someone who lives far or is about to move away, that's totally fine for you. It doesn't feel like an obstacle. Equally, you might be someone who knows that you want to settle in your hometown. So someone who wants to live a few counties or states or countries away just is never going to be someone that will work for you. Maybe one day your mutual timing will match up when their wanderlust has been satisfied in a decade or two. But right now that's not the case and it's not reasonable to hang around waiting and hoping for that to happen. You're not a medieval virgin queen waiting for her long lost love to come back from the battlefield. If you know, for example, hometown life is for you, better close down that search parameter on your dating app and be realistic about what you are and aren't willing to compromise on. Likewise, if you're, say, looking to get married and start a family, that's something you need to be clear about when you're dating because I'll bet you have some ideas around timing on that. You might meet a great person who claims they want the same things as you but isn't willing to discuss any kind of time frame. If you know what kind of relationship structure you're looking for, it enables you to honour that by only entertaining people who are willing to work towards that with you. If you know your heart's desire, the last thing you want to do is get five years deep with someone and discover that actually they have very different timing to you. You were hoping to be married with a bump by now and they're thinking it would be romantic to propose on your 10th anniversary. And look, I hope it goes without saying, no judgment. I don't care what your timing looks like, what's on your lists or what kind of logistics will and won't work for you. Just as long as you're clear on them and are willing to express and uphold them when it comes deciding time. And next up, we have this from Monica. When do you open up about anxiety and mental health in general? I'm an oversharer, so I say it on the first date. Friends say I shouldn't say it so soon because nobody even notices if you don't say it and it might give the person the wrong impression. The topic of mental health is very important though. Hey Monica, thanks for this one. Again, a question I know will be useful for lots of folks listening not only from a dating perspective, but even when it comes to meeting new friends or work colleagues. So similar to the old, are you a glass half full or glass half empty person? There are different schools of thought on trust. Some people approach new connections with the feeling that everyone starts with zero trust and they have to earn your trust bit by bit. Some people say that they give others 100% trust and let them either maintain it or chip away at it over time. I think I sit somewhere in the middle of these two. For me personally, assuming no trust, giving people no benefit of the doubt is too harsh and pessimistic. And giving people all the trust upfront without getting to know if they're really deserving of that is veering into oversharing territory, which can open us up, especially as codependent people, to being taken advantage of. Personally, I believe that most people are at their core good and trying their best. I never get the feeling that my faith in humanity has been restored because despite all the inhumane shit we perpetrate as a race, I haven't yet lost my faith in our ability to learn and do better. And I'm aware that that does come through the lens of my personal privileges. It may not be the case for other people and I can understand why that might be. 
And speaking of lenses, here are two more that I'm looking through when I meet someone new. The lens of my past experience with dysfunctional and abusive relationships and the lens of my recovery work. So armed with knowledge and application, clarity and good boundaries, I do tend to attract, allow and accept generally pretty good quality people into my life these days. So it's easier for me to approach trust and vulnerability in the way that I do, which is what I would describe as the JAR method. So how that works is I give everyone an empty metaphorical jar and I let them fill it up through the way that they respect me, listen to me, are honest, kind and vulnerable with me and make it safe for me to be vulnerable with them. They make a deposit every time they show me that they can be trusted and if they do something to break my trust or make me feel unsafe then they spend a bit of that equity. This might seem like it's the start with zero trust method, but I like to think the fact that I'm giving people the metaphorical jar to fill up is about my openness and willingness to believe that this person could and will earn my trust and we could create something cool together. So Monica, what's this got to do with talking about mental health, which you rightly say is a very important topic? Based on my personal philosophy on developing trust in a new relationship, Not the part where they say you can't even tell that you're anxious and you don't want to give people the wrong impression, but maybe that it's just not really necessary on the first date. Like, how about give yourself a chance to figure out if you actually like this person before you give them the privilege of knowing intimate details about the inner workings of your mind? Unfortunately, that's not something I often get the privilege of because my personal dysfunction and addiction is in my job title. The so what do you do conversations usually go something like this. I'm a life coach. Oh yeah, what does that entail? I work with women helping them to recover from codependency. Okay, how did you get into that? Well, I've been a coach for 10 years and I'm a recovering codependent. And what's codependency? And away we go, lol. But for that reason, I'm generally very protective of not sharing too much about my work early on or crucially sharing my social media handles or my surname because I'm very easy to find online and I'd rather tell my date in person when the timing is right, when they've made a few deposits in the trust jar that, for example, I was married before and some of the details of my wild relationship history and my recovery journey. And another point that I think is important to discuss is that you've said you feel like this is oversharing. Oversharing is a technique that codependent people use to manufacture vulnerability and therefore connection faster than it would naturally occur so as to enmesh with people. So I'd be aware of that being a possibility as well. Like, yes, again, mental health is an important topic, but what's the purpose of bringing it up on the first date? I may be totally off the mark here, but I'm also wondering if you bring it up so early almost as a defense mechanism. Are you testing your dates to see if they will be okay with the fact that you have anxiety? If it's something that does significantly affect your life and the way that you behave in relationships, then yeah, I would say it's something you want to mention early on. But again, maybe let yourself get three or four dates in and see if you actually want to see this person again. By that time, you'll hopefully have had enough conversations and they'll have had some opportunity to make a few trust deposits. And you'll be starting to get a feeling for if they're the kind of person who is deserving of more personal information about you and your mental health if they're capable of hearing it and holding it sensitively and appropriately. So I think there's a happy medium between oversharing right away and feeling like your anxiety is a dirty little secret that you have to hide from people because it will give them the wrong impression. I hope my answer helps you find a healthy balance that feels good and authentic to you. 
And we're going to finish up on something that's a little different than I usually address, but it's such a great question. I had to include it. Our lovely listener wanted to stay anonymous and they asked, I would love to hear you talk about codependency and kink. I'm a codependent person, but also like to participate in dom-sub dynamics as the sub. In my mind, that's healthy because there are boundaries and expectations that are made explicit in healthy dynamics, but I'm worried I'm allowing my codependent habits to thrive because of it. Is it a bad thing? So I asked for some more context on how they thought their sub kink might be perpetuating their codependency, and they said... I'm worried that it's allowing me to exist in a space where I put too much stock in a Dom's opinion of me, like the ultimate reliance on external validation. I'm single now, and I would only ever participate in a dynamic like this, knowing I can completely trust my partner and knowing they love and respect me. Does that cancel it out? I don't know, just thoughts that keep me up at night. Okay, my lovely, thanks for asking this one. I know it might seem quite niche, but as always, it definitely speaks to a larger concept in recovery. And that's the fear that we might have to lose certain parts of our personalities that we actually like to be fully recovered. I can reassure you that's not the case. The very cool thing about recovery is that it actually helps you reveal who you really are under all the dysfunction. I love that you're talking about boundaries, consent, communication, trust, love and respect here. That shows me that your sub kink is a true part of who you are. You're only willing to indulge it in healthy circumstances. It may well be the case that it used to be a way that you expressed your codependency. Perhaps in the past you had dysfunctional relationships with doms that were about pleasing them in every way, including ways you'd never discussed. And perhaps you shared your kink with people too soon before you knew you could trust them. But now, it seems like you're perfectly able to enjoy what you enjoy sexually, and though on the surface it may seem like being submissive is not a healthy outlet for a recovering codependent, your intentions and boundaries are clear. So, digging just a little further shows that it's actually a perfectly healthy part of your life that you should continue to enjoy, as well as a great opportunity for you to keep practicing your recovery. In the same way, someone who wants and desires a relationship but has always been in dysfunctional codependent relationships before might feel like it's never safe for them to have a relationship again. Of course, it totally is. With recovery and conscious work on healing the codependent wound, there's no reason why that person can't go ahead and have a great or several great healthy, fulfilling relationships in the future. It's not the relationship or the kink that is the issue. They're just benign vehicles. The issue is the dysfunctional trauma response that if you have it, could and probably will be played out through those vehicles. If you feel like you've removed the codependency or at least a good chunk of it and the kink remains, go forth and sub, my friend. And speaking of subbing, but a different kind, how about subscribing to the pod, hey babes? Make sure you don't miss an episode and let your preferred podcast platform know that you love listening to the anti-people pleasing podcast. And while you're at it, I would love it if you could leave me a gorgeous five-star review. And just before you go, I'd like to remind you that my codependency recovery community, Wildly Worthy, is open now. For less than £50 a month, you can get access to weekly Q&A coaching calls with me, as well as my full online codependency recovery course and a community of people who are all on this recovery journey with you. So that means a totally supportive, judgment-free zone. Wildly Worthy is open to all women and female socialized non-binary people. Until next time, my loves.
codependent person, but I also like to participate in Dobbs. Uh, I also like to participate in Dobson dynamics. That's where I dob you in for not doing your sums. I guess that is quite dumb, Subby, isn't it? <laughs> that is the sound of me tearing off my back support. Oh, yeah. It is just 100% hot sex recording this podcast, babes. 100%. If I'm not burping down the mic, I'm just ripping off the Velcro. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's how you know you're 35 you're wearing a back support while you record your podcast i'm a millennial huh. 